Our scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. And you can see that on the screen or your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you. Lovely reading of scripture this morning. Thank you very much. Julia, Dennis. Uh, if you were here last week, you're going to hear a message from the same text. If you weren't here last week, then uh, I encourage you to listen to the sermon. It was a great sermon. There's still a few nuggets that we want to mine for in this text. As we, um, as we begin today, I just want to ask you a question which is, what are you aiming for? What are you aiming for in life? So C.S. Lewis, that famous um, medievalist and uh, children's author, once said these words, once wrote these words, aim for heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim for earth and you'll get neither which is a little bit like saying, if you aim for pleasure always, you'll be surprised by pain. And if you are aware that life includes pain, then you'll be surprised by pleasure. Um, in our context today, what I wanna think about with you is the relationship between pleasure and suffering. And we're gonna combine two things that are 
not usually combine. 60 years ago this year, a woman named Helen Gurley, not spelled G-I-R-L-E-Y, but G-U-R-L-E-Y, wrote a book called uh, Sex and the Single Girl. And in the book, uh, what she does is basically, well, you could say tries to decouple sexuality from marriage. Now, there's been a lot of articles written on this, especially recently, because uh, a new volume has come out that's called Not Sex and the Single Girl, but Sex and the Single Woman, which has 24 essays. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, has 24 essays that are reflecting on how much has changed over the last 60 years. When uh, her book came out, it was two years after the FDA had approved the pill, and so things did change dramatically in terms of sexuality and marriage. There is an article this week that you could check out if you want to um, that was in The Atlantic called The Fight to Decouple Sex from Marriage. And uh, the, the premise of the article is stated this way, that 60 years ago, Helen Gurley Brown's best-selling book promised women sexual freedom, but today it reads like an omen. First published in 1962, it's part memoir, part advice man manual, offering tips about careers, fashion, beauty, diet, hobbies, self-care, travel, home decorating, and yes, dating. But it's best remembered for one of the arguments that is put forward, which is this is that sexuality is to be enjoyed by, sim by single women who participate not to please a man, as may have been the case in olden times, but to please themselves. And so I just want to admit, this is where our culture comes into what you might call a head-on crash with the gospel. In Romans chapter 15, we read the words that Jesus did not please himself but took on the reproach of the others. So the question, I just have one question besides what are you aiming at that I want to ask today, which is what does the cross of Jesus have to do with human sexuality? Or how does the cross of Jesus, which is foundational to the book of 1 Corinthians, how does it affect or reshape marriage, singleness, divorce and separation. And that's actually a pretty easy way to think about this, this passage, is that what the Apostle Paul is doing is going back to this theology that someone gave their life for us and then reshaping how we think about sex. So as, uh, as Helen Gurley Brown stated, we, most of us think about sex in order to please ourselves. But Here's a quote from Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer says that when Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a woman, he bids them come and die. So how in the world do those two spheres, sexuality and the cross, overlap with one another? And uh, I'm just going to give you the three kind of breaks in this text. One is how the cross of Jesus reshapes marital sex. That's verses 1 to 5. And then 2 is how the cross of Jesus reshapes singleness. And the third one is how the cross reshapes 
divorce and separation. And I'm going to pray, but before I do one more uh, word from Bonhoeffer, he says this, the deep meaning of the cross of Jesus is that there is no suffering on the earth that is not born by God. So whatever suffering you see yourself called to today, the Son of God went there first. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for sunshine. Thank you for uh, the perennial summer in Chicago that we experience year-round here and uh, for the joys of being outside. Uh, thank you for the changing of the seasons. On a serious topic, Lord, give us uh, wisdom and insight into how Jesus' life and death reshapes our understanding of sexuality. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So my first claim is very simple, that the cross of Jesus reshapes what, what we're calling marital sex here in verses 1 to 5. Am I getting a little buzzing or a ding? And is it bothering you? And can you fix it? Try to put it out of your mind, okay? I just recognized it so that now you don't have to think about it anymore, okay? So here's the, here's the claim. I'll make it a little more elaborate. That, that the cross of Jesus reshapes marital sex so, it, so that it's actually not about pleasing yourself, but it's about pleasing the other person. Right? So in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, what he does, the way he opens the book is on emphasizing what you might call the centrality of the cross. And he, he says, um, when I, this is chapter 2, verse 1, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And then he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is a very foolish picture. A crucified man upon the tree, Paul, upon a tree, Paul is saying, is at the center of Christianity. He also says, um, he says, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So part of what the cross does is it takes what seems to be wise in the eyes of the world and it flips it. It's a, you could call Jesus' love a power-inverting, barrier-crossing love that, that brings a new kingdom in and sort of reshapes everything else. Um, another way to think of this is that um, if, we're going to sing in a minute, um, all my de debts are paid, they've been paid in full. And the idea is that Jesus bought you. So there's something that happens on the cross that's called atonement or a great exchange where the unrighteousness, the brokenness, your hidden sins, all of your, what, what Isaiah describes as filthy rags, are taken off of you, put on Christ, and all of his holiness, all of his goodness, all of his purity is put on you. That's a great exchange or an atonement. But there's something else that happens on the cross, which is that Jesus buys you out of a world of futility and seeking after just the pleasures of the world, and he says, you're mine. So he buys you, all right? So what's happening in this section, actually, of 1 Corinthians is that Paul is following up on the argument and saying, you don't belong to you anyways. <laughs> you belong to God. 
That's what he says in, in uh, chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. He says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Lord within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in our body. Consumer sexuality says that you own you, and therefore you should please yourself as much as you can. Cross-centered sexuality says God owns you, and therefore you're not about seeking your own pleasure. What's interesting at this point in 1 Corinthians is that there's like a pendulum swing that has happened. So in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, you know, we got this person. There was a situation in Corinth where someone's sleeping with their mother-in-law and they're proud of it. And Paul's like, man, even the, even the pagans don't do that. You guys are proud of that. What's, what's going on? But at chapter 7, verse 1, we'll put it up on the screen in a moment. Um, they sort of have swung the pendulum the other direction and they've said it's good for someone not even to touch someone or not to um, have sexual relations with a woman. This often happens in culture, right? So there's a kind of swing towards do whatever you want to. And then other people trying to protect themselves swing the other direction and say, oh, you, you shouldn't ever touch a woman. You shouldn't ever have sexual relations. That's, in some ways, that's what the purity culture of sort of 20 years ago or 30 years ago did. It said, hey, we're going to create this kind of moralistic structure where sex is so forbidden that everything is out of bounds, right? So they've written to Paul this, this, this question, and they, they've said to him, is it true that it's not good for a woman, for, for someone to have sexual relations with a woman? And Paul responds to that, and it's sort of like, they're like, are we right, Paul? And he's kind of like, eh, kind of, but no, not really. <laughs> no, you're not right. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, not a phrase that comes up every day in conversation, conjugal rights, as you're just standing around the drinking fountain. Uh, yeah, maybe they're like, what the heck is conjugal rights? You probably can figure out what it is from context clues, but here's how Miriam defines it. The sexual rights or privileges implied by and involved in the marriage relationship, the right of sexual intercourse between spouses. And what he's saying is that you, your, your spouse, her body or his body belongs not to themselves, but to the other one. Uh, marriage is about serving the other person. Here's what it says, verse four, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. That's a pretty amazing statement, actually, in the first century culture, because the word authority there is a very strong word. It's the same word that's used in First Timothy chapter two, verses 10 and 11. And here it's saying that a woman has authority over her husband's body. One way to think about this is that marriage is not about convenience, or consumerism, but it is about a covenant. It's about saying, I would live for you and I would die for you. Wendell Berry, um, the poet, novelist, and contrarian agrarian, puts it this way. Marriage is a mutual promise of a man and a woman to live together, to love and help each other in mutual fidelity until death. It's understood that there's a definition of it, until death. A man and a woman. And then he says it's understood that these definitions cannot be altered to suit convenience or circumstances any more than we can call a rabbit a squirrel because we prefer to call it a squirrel. 
and then he uses a kind of poetry analogy. He says that we don't resolve the difficulties of poetry by just deciding to break the rules of syntax or deciding to write prose. That doesn't solve the problem. And then he says this, marriage doesn't invite one to solve one's quarrel with one's spouse or one's wife by marrying a more compliant woman, which is how we view it today. It's like, you know what? You're argumentative. I'm tired of this. Or I'm, I've, I've sort of fallen out of love with you and I don't want to be together anymore. What, in, what Wendell Berry is envisioning is a covenant that guides us through the, the, the valleys and the, the mountaintop experience. That's, another way to think of it is that marriage is a promise that I'm going to meet you in the future at the graveside and I'm going to go through the whole thing with you. Covenantal love says that we love each other so deeply that we give ourselves fully to one another, verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, sex and marriage is to be frequent, free, unrestrained, and generous. Um, Oscar last week read from uh, Proverbs 5 about drinking water from your own cistern. And uh, he read these, verse, these verses. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. So what Paul is doing is he sees the Corinthians sort of swinging in one direction saying, oh, we shouldn't even touch one another, that there should be no sexual intercourse. He says, actually, no. There is a place for it to place it within the bounds of marriage. I'm going to take you to the second section here. And what he's, what, just I'll point out the logic and then I'll, I'll move on. The logic is that you're, now I'm a little bit distracted by the ringing, okay? Do you want me to go without a microphone? What do you say, Lindsay? Okay, I'm getting differing signals between Katina and Lindsay. I'll keep the microphone for a moment. Here's, here's the logic. The cross says this place where Jesus Christ died, he gave his body for our bodies. And so in marriage, the body of the husband and the body of the wife is sort of exchanged. They now live for one another. All right, but at least half of us are single so that is, at this moment, that doesn't apply to you. So Paul moves on in the topic to talk now about singleness. How does the cross of Jesus reshape singleness? That's in verses 6 to 8. I'll put it really simply. Singleness is a benefit to the mission of God on the earth. That is not the message that the church, capital C, in North America normally says. Normally what, the church, normally what you hear in our culture is that marriage is the pinnacle of all of our aspirations. And Paul takes that tower and knocks it down. And he builds another tower in which he says that there's a great exalted calling to singleness because it allows the person to be unhindered in their pursuit of Christ, okay? Consumer sexuality says that my desires are at the center of my universe. 
and cross-shaped sexuality says, your desires are good. But the creator of the world is at the center of your universe, not your desires. And one of the reasons why it's almost incomprehensible for our culture to be able to grasp this, grasp the gospel, is because we are so oriented towards our desires, towards our comfort, towards fulfilling ourselves. And that's why the cross is so radical, why the gospel is so radical, because it, it tips down the tower of self-exaltation. It says, no, there's something else at the center of the universe that was hidden away for thousands of generations and has now come forward, which is that God is a servant, which is that God gave up his desires in order to find you. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command. So he's not saying, hey, this is how it has to be for everyone. He's saying, I'm just speaking in a sense on my own. I wish that all were as I am. But each has his own gift. That's a really actually important word in the book of Corinthians. When he greets them at the very beginning, he's like, man, you guys are incredibly gifted. He like plants this little seed at the beginning of the book because he's going to come after them and hammer them later in the book. First Corinthians 12, he's like, you guys have all these amazing gifts and you're so self-centered that you're just using your gifts like clanging gongs. You're doing everything so everyone else can see you. He's like, where's love? Love needs to be at the center. So when he says, see, most of us misunderstand the idea of a gift because we think of a gift as like something that's little and wrapped and you unwrap it, you know, and it's got a bow. And it's for us. The idea of gifts in the New Testament and in the book of 1 Corinthians is that the gifts are given to you to use for other people. That Jesus took his life and gave it for you and then he, he pours out grace on you Maybe the, the gift of hospitality, maybe the gift of generosity, maybe the gift of speaking Spanish, maybe the gift of leadership, maybe the gift of servanthood. And he says, what is that for? To puff you up, to make you look good, to make you a celebrity? No. It's to lower yourself so that the church might be built up, like we just sang, and echo into eternity. So right here, I had a friend in college, freshman year, and he's like, he, used to, he was a pretty funny guy, and he used to joke about this, the gift, of, the gift of singleness, thank you very much. He was single. He's like, that's the gift that nobody wants, right? I don't want that gift. Paul's saying, no, when God gives you a gift, he gives it to you so that you can push the mission forward, so that you can exalt Jesus. So Paul's saying, look, let me correct this marital idolatry in North America that says you're incomplete if you're single. That you're not fully, somehow fully alive. And he says, no. He says, you are more devoted to the mission than a married person. That's literally what he says. Verse, this is in the next little section, 732. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So if you're not married, you're like thinking about 
man, you wake up in the morning, like, get your cup of coffee. What does God want me to do today? I know that's how you guys all function. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. The married person wakes up and they're like, why is that baby crying already? Like, why couldn't you have slept in till 6.45 at least, you know? A lot of times when I talk to new parents, they're, they're rightly in a daze. You know, they're just like, I didn't know it was this much work. How did you have five children? They have those toothpicks in their eyeballs, you know. The problem with little babies is they don't understand mealtimes, right? They don't understand sleep. Like, they don't understand the difference between night and day. They can't chew. They can't hold their necks up straight. They don't even understand English, right? They don't understand that as a parent you have other priorities. How are you supposed to read your Bible if you can't keep your eyes open, right? So Paul is saying it's just a bunch of stuff that married people are preoccupied with. I love how he says it at the end of verse 35, chapter 7. He says, I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided attention to the Lord. What is the goal of Paul in that section? To call people, to call single people, to, to elevate the calling of singleness as the opportunity to sit in, I know this sounds like overly romantic, but to sit in devotion at the feet of Jesus and to do whatever he wants you to do. Now, of course, this is before Netflix or before um, John Madden football or anything like that, where we have all these distractions. But you get the point. So if you're single here today, I just want to say to you, it might only be a time period, but the way God views you as, is as being an elevated missionary in his cause. And he loves you more than he loves married people. Okay, not, not that last part, but I just want to make sure you were still with me, okay? Then he goes on and he says, this is verse 8, he says, to the unmarried and widows I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot out exercise self-control, which is a kind of humorous, it's like Paul can because he's single, right? I can. You know, if there's other people that can't exercise self-control, whatever, uh, they should marry. But it's better, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, in college, lots of men were quoting that verse, you know, better to marry than to burn with passion. What's a bummer is Paul doesn't explain, like, how do you just get married? That's nice, Paul. You should get married. How do you do that? One theologian puts it this way, oh, 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 oh. If you liked it, then you should have put a ring on it. If you liked it, <laughs> don't be mad once you see that he wanted. If you liked it, you should have been, put a ring on it. In our office right now, we have this television that we use to like do meetings together. And we'll like be zooming in. And then when you turn off the screen, Literally, Beyonce comes up and starts dancing because it's connected to Apple TV, and we're not smart enough to figure out how to turn it off, and I think Sully likes it anyway, but just kidding. <laughs> Maybe you're weary of the world of consumer-oriented sex, and Paul's saying, hold out 
for covenant-oriented sex. In the New York Times 2012, there's an article where a woman said, I felt like I was on an endless, ongoing process of trying out to be, she's talking about living together, of trying to try out to be his wife. Paul is saying hold out for covenantal sex. So let's create community for one another, singles and married. Let's, let's make space for each other. Let's respect each other's boundaries. Let's celebrate uh, each other's milestones. Melissa, congratulations on getting your master's degree. Big round of applause for Melissa. single guy shared in our community group a couple months ago, and he said that he turned down, it, I don't, I, he said I could tell this, and I don't think he's here, but, um, so I kind of exaggerated a little bit, just kidding. No, he, he was saying that um, he turned down a promotion. His boss comes to him, he's like, I really want you to take this job. And he said, no, I don't want the promotion. Because he didn't want work to so fill his life that he couldn't be devoted to the Lord. He didn't want to be tempted, actually, by the money. He said in three years he would have doubled his income, and he's already making a lot of money. He said no. In my mind, those are the kinds of decisions that are gospel decisions that are made in the center of the city. That doesn't mean you should never take a promotion. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that devotion to the Lord, this is what Paul is saying, the cross reshapes singleness to be on mission. Do you know that Jesus was never married? In part to set an example for you of what it looks like to live a life that is entirely on mission. I have a friend who I had the privilege of doing her wedding a long time ago, but I met her when she was like a sophomore in college and she said, so if some people ask her, like, are you married? She's, she, or are you dating anyone? She'd say, yeah. She'd say, sorry. She would say, no, I'm married to Jesus. That's literally what she would say. And if you're single right now, you are going to have a wedding day one day. I know that sounds a little sappy, but Jesus is going to have a wedding day one day also. And if you're married right now, you're going to be unmarried in heaven and remarried to Jesus. He set you free. He's exalted you singles by his blood and in his name and in his freedom I am free for the love of Christ who has resurrected me. I got to hurry on to verses 10 to 17. So the cross reshapes marriage, sex and marriage, the cross reshapes singleness and puts people on mission. Last one is the cross divorce and separation. And uh, let me just put this in context for a moment, historical context. In the first century Hebrew culture, a man could divorce a woman for any reason. Didn't matter. You might think, oh, things have gotten more strict. But they had no-fault divorce in uh, the, the Hebrew culture, which is why the, in Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they, their question literally is, can we divorce someone for any and every reason? My college Old Testament professor used to say, because she burned the toast. And the answer was yes, in that culture. Except Jesus is like, haven't you ever read the Bible, guys? <laughs> Didn't you ever read Genesis? Where it says, therefore, a husband shall leave his wife. 
or God created them male and female, and therefore a husband shall leave his wife and, and be joined to her, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's saying that unity is the purpose of marriage. Jesus is not real big on, he's, he's against divorce for any and all reasons. He's against divorce, which is based on my self-centeredness or based on my um, falling out of love or something. He's like, That's, no, they're supposed to be unified. I want to be really careful here and say that there are biblical and very good reasons for divorce. And there are people who get divorces for unbiblical reasons and Jesus still loves you. And Jesus still has a plan for you. I'm going to give you three quick reasons that are biblical reasons for divorce. Abuse, adultery, and abandonment. So Jesus covers adultery in Matthew 19. This passage covers um, abandonment and elsewhere covers abuse. So with this, I just want to be clear that what this passage is not saying is, hey, if you're in an abusive relationship, stay in it. What it's saying is stick together. One way to think of it is that, you know, they're modern married people because of globalization and our economy. It's like, oh, I'm going to live on the West Coast and she's going to live on the East Coast. That doesn't really work and it kind of defies what marriage is about. So that's what Paul is addressing next is this idea of separation. He's saying don't divide the unity. Keep it together. He's actually saying it's better for everybody if a gospel-oriented, cross-centered person stays in the marriage. It helps the kids too. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, and if she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce her wife. That is, separation is fine. It's a strategy to bring a couple back together, and sometimes it's necessary. But the principle is unity. And separation and divorce, divorce in particular, or conscious uncoupling, as it's called today, uh, divides the unity. So then Paul goes on, let me, sorry, let me put it this way. Unity is the principle, but holiness is the purpose. Okay, so you stay together, but it's just not unity alone that you're seeking after in a marriage relationship or even in singleness. It's holiness, which is, goes back to Lewis. If you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you aim for earth, you miss heaven and earth. If you aim for holiness you'll bump into happiness. If you aim for happiness, you'll miss holiness completely. So Paul says, 7.12, to the rest I say, not I but the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, uh, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce him. If you've married somebody who doesn't share your faith, stick with them is what he's saying. If any woman has a a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean as it is they are holy. Unity is the principle, but holiness is, is the objective. Is it just cultural? 
the young children who are raised in a Jesus-exalting, Christ-saturated, humble environment that focuses on the Word of God, that they love Jesus. He's saying, no, it's not just cultural. But there's an, my mom was raised in India from the time that she was about four years old until she was 18, lived in boarding school, never saw her parents. But she came home somehow with like songs of joy in her heart. And if you ever met her, she'd give you a hug. She's like one of the most joyful people that you would ever meet. But her joy somehow was communicated to the next generation so that they love Jesus. That was what Paul is saying happens that the faith of the parents or the faith of the wife can infect the faith even of an unbelieving spouse and even of unbelieving children. There are biblical reasons for divorce, adultery, abuse, and abandonment. And and abandonment comes up in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. If a spouse so separates from their husband or wife that they've left the marriage, then the, the, the other spouse is no longer bound. bound. In other words, that, that phrase there, it's kind of weird, is not enslaved. It's a, the word is really like bound, and it means that you're set free. So if a husband just takes off on his wife and is gone for three years or however long, then there's a point at which the, the wife can say, that marriage is over, like we said, till death do us part, but he's gone. That's what Paul is saying here. So if you think of how the cross is shaping this, shape, reshapes marital sex, reshapes singleness to be on mission, and here it reshapes separation and divorce to say that you want the holiness of the other person, not just your own personal pleasure. That's what's happening here. Covenantal marriage says, I will adapt to you. Marriage of convenience says, you know what? If you change, then I change. Or if I change, then our marriage will change. Jesus gave his life to make us holy. Let me just do a couple closing applications. One is, don't forget the the life-altering logic of the cross, okay? Paul wants that to like seep into everything that you do. That someone gave their life for you to liberate you from sin and to free you to be a servant in the world and to communicate good news. So like, keep that at the center. Secondly is let's recapture the, the glory of singleness. Singleness is not a consolation prize for those who did not win at the game of romantic love. It's, and this is so countercultural, you can only understand it if you understand who Jesus is. It's his way of saying, join me in this mission that we are on. And in this exalted calling. Third, let's keep creating hospitality. The city can be very lonely. I'm just talking about married people and single people doing urban hospitality together. Fourth and next to last is be practical. If you burn, then get married. I, I wish there was more from Paul there. There's not. And the last thing I'll say is let's honor but de-idolize marriage. Okay? 
Marriage isn't the goal. Jesus Christ is the goal. It's the Alpha and the Omega. And he's the only one that can fully satisfy us. The deep meaning of the cross is there's no suffering on earth that is not borne by God. The cross reshapes us not to live for our pleasures, but to live for others the way Christ gave himself for us. He bears your sufferings. I'm going to sing in a second. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. You belong to him because he paid it all. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, which picks up complex and confusing topics. But thank you for how Jesus' barrier-crossing, power-inverting, love-redefining death reshapes us. Help us to keep being reshaped by his love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.